0: Today I'm speaking with Nira Ibrahimović. Nira is a UCLA undergrad majoring in molecular, cell, and developmental biology. She is the host of the podcast Craving College, and overall is an inspiring human being. So often when we think of professors, we imagine these figures made unreachable by their titles. Dr. Blank. But we can't forget that these professors... These scientists and Nobel laureates, they were once undergrads. So, as you listen to this conversation, imagine that you have just stepped back into the past to listen to the 19-year-old version of one of the great scientists of the future. In addition to being a top student, Nira is also pretty woke. So, be prepared, I warn, for some deep rumination about the universe. We discuss topics including office hours, how science relates to spirituality, the parallels between quantum mechanics and eastern philosophy, whether consciousness could exist without a body, how mind relates to physiology, and more broadly, to matter as a whole, and whether it's possible for consciousness to exist after death. So without further ado, here is Nira Ibrahimovic. You're listening to The Elder Llama Podcast, the show that inspires curious minds to ponder the secrets of the universe. My name is Erica Mezqua. I'm a UCLA undergrad STEM major. And in this podcast, I combine my knowledge of astrophysics, evolutionary biology, and the nature of the human mind to make cohesive observations about the world. Today, I'm speaking with... Nira Ibrahimovic, uh, Nira. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Eric.
0: That is how you pronounce your last name, right? It's yes,
1: it's Ibrahimovic.
0: Awesome. Okay. So, funnily enough, um, we met at, in Dr. Eric Sherry's 14B Chem class, who I had on last episode, and we discovered that we share a lot of uh, a lot of interests, and uh, I'm pretty excited to talk with you. We have a lot of good topics coming up in the next hour or so. Uh, So maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing right now, what you want to do in the future.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So as Eric said, my name is Neera. I'm currently a second year student at UCLA. I'm majoring in molecular cell and developmental biology, and I'm minoring in mathematical biology. I actually think it's kind of interesting you ask me that now, because if you ask me that Maybe a year ago, I think I would have had a totally different answer because I feel like college has changed me a lot and it's really given me a new perspective on life and where I wanna go. But if there's one thing that's remained constant throughout all my years of schooling is that I have this really big passion for for learning. I have a really deep curiosity about the world and learning to me isn't just about getting grades or getting a passing score on the test and moving on. I really wanna discover the whys and the hows behind what I'm learning. And that's why i really enjoy students like you eric because i feel like you ask questions like that as well and then we can have these conversations that dig deeper because essentially we are the future scientists in this world we are going to be the future professors and um, the future Nobel prize winners and all of that so i um for my future i really want to be a professor the main reason is because my professors have made an enormous impact on me and i think as a student you're a stage in your life where your brain is still forming and you're learning so much about the world and about yourself and your teachers and your professors growing up really, really shape that experience for you. And a lot about um, a class is about the conversations and relationships you make with the students around you and your professors so the same impact that the professors I've worked with have left on me I want to leave that for future students and I want to change education in a way such that all students have this curiosity and Um, passion for learning that I do and that you do too, Eric. I think that is a really beautiful thing.
0: Amazing. That is why you are a top student at UCLA, whether you admit it or not. Everything you said, I I totally agree with. And this is kind of the direction I want to take the podcast in as well. Yes, I do want to interview top scientists like Dr. Sherry and Andrea Ghez. She'll be on here in the future, but I also want to interview some of the top minds of my peer group, right? Like yourself, like some of the, the the students I meet in my classes who blow me away and who inspire me, because, like you said, we're going to be the next generation of scientists, and that's a big deal, right? So, this this episode, like it, it, you, you kind of you said that you are a an MCDB major, right? you're kind of calling the shots for the future. You're saying like, this is what I'm going to be. I want to be a professor. And maybe you'll look at this a decade from now and you will have fulfilled those goals. One of the things that we've talked about before is what it means to be a student, truly what it means, not what people think it means or the, the convoluted... Um, idea that being a student is grades and stuff like that. We've talked about this a lot and you briefly touched on it. I'd like to hear your thoughts. What is being a student for you?
1: Yeah, that's a really, that's a really deep question. And like you said, I think typically when people think of the definition of a student, they would just think of someone who is attending school, who is completing their coursework, getting their grades and cut and dry. That's what a student is. But I don't, I don't think so. I think a student goes way deeper than that. And to me, a student is all about curiosity. It's all about you're living in this world and there's so much to discover and you're always a student in life. You never, even when you graduate college, when you get your PhD after that, you're still a student because student is just all about learning and asking about the world and questioning everything and discovering those whys and hows. That's what makes you a student. I think right now, being a student is so imperative because we are in a stage where, you know, our brains are still forming. We're learning so much. We're discovering about who we are, who everyone around us is and discovering what we wanna do in life and forming those passions. And that is all the process of being a student. College really does that for you too. It helps you find those passions. But um, something that I really, really value in my learning experience is relationships. I think that going to office hours and forming connections with professors and, Reaching out to students, forming studying groups, speaking with your peers and learning about their minds and how beautiful their minds are and how many thoughts they have to give and how those interchange with yours. I think that's also really a beautiful part of the experience in being a student um, and what makes this learning process so great.
0: Yeah, and that that's one of the great privileges of being at a school like UCLA. Not only do you have a pretty good education, you also have access to humanity's best minds, right? Nobel laureates working down the hall. And you can talk to them. Like You can go to their office hours and pick their brains. It might be awkward at first, but I guarantee you there's lessons to be learned from them and connections that you can make. That's something I've discovered for myself in the past two years or so. I'm now my third year at UCLA. But coming in, you feel like you are just another person, just another, uh, another student, a statistic, and that you, it, as a result, you will be average, right? I came in with that underestimation of myself, but being in office hours, you realize like, wow, like I can be that person who connects with this professor. I can be the person who talks to that Nobel laureate and actually gets a letter of rec from them. That can be you listener doesn't have to be some, you know, it's not this perfect person. It's you are enough to be that person. So you you said something about brain development and learning and how our brains are developing and what we learn uh, right now is crucial and our environment is crucial because it's kind of going to influence who we are in the future. Can you expand a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, just going back to your point about how you feel like you're a fish in a big sea, right? When you go into a new school and everybody around you is top students and everything, and you feel like you're just one among everybody. I kind of had that similar mindset when I was coming in. I felt very, almost like imposter syndrome. You know, you don't really know if you're going to fit in. You don't know how you're going to stand out in classes of 300 people. How are you going to make yourself known? But I actually was very surprised to find that even in a class of 300 students, you go to office hours and there's like five, six people, maybe 10 people at most. And you really, really have that opportunity to talk to your professors and to stand out. And if you make this a consistent thing and you actively make the effort to form these relationships, it is very easy to make yourself known. And professors start seeing you as that student who goes out of their way to make that effort and isn't afraid to talk to professors and make those connections. So I think that's a really powerful thing to understand Um, for new students listening to this podcast make that an active effort. Don't make school just about getting your grades or studying hard. Try to really focus on relationships because I think relationships are the key to success. And that's what really gets you close to um, the professor and the learning about where they're coming from and they learn more about you too. And then on your question, Eric, about um, brain development and everything, I think mainly what I'm touching on that is that right now we're just in a very critical stage of our life. I feel like right now, we are learning about our passions and a lot of us still don't have those passions. A lot of us don't know what we want to do, but the beautiful thing about the stage of life that we're in is it's an exploration stage. We can explore so many different things now. We can explore different pathways, different topics, and find out what that passion really is. And that is an ever-changing thing, but now since we're under so much influence and since we're under so much, um, you know, we're really able to form who we are based off of who we talk to, the relationships we form, the professors surround ourselves, friends, all of that. I think it's just critical to make that active effort for yourself to form those relationships so that you can develop that perspective on who you are. Because self-awareness is like, that's where everything stems from, learning about who you are. And then you can learn about others as well and how that all comes together.
0: That was awesome. Yeah, it's weird how there's five students in office hours. Maximum I think I've seen is like, 12, and that was right before a midterm. That just goes to show that the vast majority of students are in the I'm just going to get my grade process. Of course, some don't need office hours and they're geniuses, and you'll have those top like 5% who just you study by themselves and ruin the curve. Um, but that kind of leaves everyone else as like, I just don't really want to go to office hours. So, why am I going to spend another hour? on top of lectures, on top of homework and studying, uh, you know, uh, activities, stuff like that. But if you just commit to, like, going to office hours every week, it doesn't have to be for all your classes, maybe the classes that you care about, the teachers you wanted to get to know. You're going to see tremendous results in your your academics for that class, but also, like, in your social skills. You You learn how to network with somebody who... Is perhaps above your station, someone who has more experience than you, who knows people in, your, in their fields, who can get you letters of rec. That's a life hack is going to office hours.
1: Right. I would say um, just to touch on that, even if you even if you don't have any questions, even if you understand all the material fully, I think office hours, it's not just a place to get clarified on with the material. It's just really a place of forming relationships. So I would say like advice I would have is to, as you said, Eric, to ingrain that into your schedule. So like make a calendar of everything, all your classes and include office hours as a lecture time. So you're really committed to going to office hours. And I do have a little story I'd like to share. I, just this last quarter, I took probably the hardest class I've taken so far at UCLA. It was an upper division stats class, but it had a really It was reputable for being a really hard class. And I was very scared going into this class. But the professor, he was intimidating at first. I'm not going to lie. I was a bit intimidated. But he held two hours of office hours every single day. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do my very best in this class. I want to show the professor that I'm trying. I want to show that I care. So I'm going to go to these office hours. And I went to these office hours. And we started breaking the ice with each other. And instead of just talking about stats, we started talking about life. I started learning about cooking recipes. From him, I started learning about his pathway to becoming a professor. And even though everything was in a virtual environment, we became so close that I ended up going to UCLA and we scheduled to meet each other in person. So I was able to meet this professor in person for the first time since COVID hit. And that was just honestly a really beautiful experience um, so far in my UCLA journey. And it's all because I chose to make that active effort to form relationships and not just get those, get those grades. But they're in one, one Once you start forming those relationships, you're rates increase as well. So <laughs> you might as well do it for both.
0: Now that we're pretty deep in office hours, I guess I will add something as well. Adding to what you said about the questions you ask, you don't necessarily need to have questions. You just go and then you can get inspired to ask some. But more than what asking what's going to be on the test, because that's what everyone's going to ask there. There's another way to like even set yourself apart from the people in office hours and that's don't ask questions about the class so much if you have a question you generally have one of course do it but if you don't ask them something like more interesting than that you know they're they're asking they're answering these questions about how to solve this problem all day so if you can make their day interesting by asking something you're truly interested in then it's just a win win for everyone
1: Yeah, completely. And I I remember, Eric, in Chem 14B, you would always ask much deeper questions about the universe and life. And that definitely, not just for Dr. Sherry, but for students too, I think that made the class a lot more interesting. So if you can have those deeper questions, or even questions just about their life, just ask them about how their day was, things like that. A form of conversation as if they're just your friend. I think that's a great way too to break the ice of professionality and, and see them as Someone you can really learn from, but not just class material, like a life mentor as well.
0: Absolutely. I know you listened to my latest episode, and that's kind of the turn that our conversation took. We were talking about science and chemistry, and at first, you know, it was the basic, perhaps not your basic interview, but uh, it was definitely more orthodox. But towards the end, we really started to get into even this professor's philosophy about how the universe works. And that's not something you're going to get during lecture. Those are the the special things you're going to get by taking the time to really develop a bond. And that is going to office hours, asking questions, talking, being that student. I do have a f- few other things that I'd like to talk about besides office hours. But now, now you're an expert on office hours, listener. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that Sherry and I talked about was how science relates to spirituality. Uh, I know that you are a hardcore scientist, but you're also, the, you, you're also spiritual in a way. I wanna hear a little bit about your philosophy about the world.
1: Ooh, that's a deep question. Okay, awesome, yeah. So just like you said, I am a scientist. Um, I, I believe in science, I follow science, I wanna be a scientist in the future. But I'm also spiritual, and I believe in this this universal energy of love, and I believe in this light that kind of connects us all. Like we're all we're all one, and we're connected by this light. Some people call it God. People can call it whatever they want. It's this light that flows through us all, and I think that um, science and spirituality are very connected, and they don't um, they don't bring each other down. In fact, they kind of carry each other up in a way. And I think a lot of Things about spirituality can be explained by science and vice versa as well. But my main spiritual philosophy is that our truest essence in everybody is love, and down to the core, we all have love and um, God or light, whatever you want to call it. All of that is just this big bubble of love that we all sh- that we all um, contribute to, and. Um, When we talk about science and we learn about how the world works and the mechanisms we're kind of like breaking it down into the nitty gritty parts right we're kind of reducing it into all these little um the little things we learn about about how life works but then spirituality is kind of like the emergent property of all that it's kind of like okay this is how the world works but this is like the driving force this is like the the light that underlies everything On top of how the world works, this is the, how do I say, like the breath that runs through it all. And when you can connect to both, I think it really broadens your um, understanding on life because you get the practicality of how the world works, but you also feel the beauty and you feel so in it and like the presence um, of yourself in that world with spirituality.
0: Beautiful. I want to break that down a little bit. That feeling of love that you said, that universal love that is in everyone, it's there, but for many, it gets clouded by thoughts and the day and mortal problems, right? This is where I think meditation is such a powerful tool. And recently, I've been listening to this Indian mystic named Muji, and his whole approach to meditation. Uh, In fact, he doesn't even call it meditation. His approach is very easy. It's not a logical form of, uh, of getting to any state. And it's not like visualization or imagining something. What he does is he just says, like, empty yourself. Take your identity, put it aside. Take any thoughts you have, any worries about the future, what you've done before, what you have to do, your planning, put it all aside. And if you can just take a few minutes to notice the thoughts arise and just keep putting them aside, there will always be something that you cannot put aside. And it is this sense of awareness, this consciousness, pure consciousness with no thoughts in it. And that sense of awareness, that beingness within you, it is pure love. It is pure peace it knows no anxiety or fear or doubts or worries it's just like chill it's bliss so there are methods of getting in touch with that that love that you talked about it's within us but it requires a little a little work to and i don't know if that's the right word but it's like for many it's not right there always right so there is some some TLC that one must do in order to bring that out in themselves. And meditation is a great way. Okay, so on to the other thing about spirituality and science. Like you said, they don't contradict each other if you really look into it. And I've been reading this book called The Tao of Physics, which points out the similarities between Eastern philosophy from Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and modern physics, those ph- Eastern philosophies—they talk about this unity, this oneness that all things are. And that sounds a little out there, but what we're seeing with modern physics is that the smaller you go, eventually the definition of a particle is very different from the definition up here in the macro world. Up here, we can think of a particle as like a billiard b- billiard ball bouncing off another one, right? But down there, we actually think about them as fields, as waves, as these quantum fields. And we're finding that all of these fields are entangled. They're connected because, of course, they were at one point one thing. That is the Big Bang. But in doing these observations, it's so easy for us to be like, oh, we're here. I'm, we're the observer. And over there, those are the fields. But that's not what it is. We are the fields. We are the universe. We are living in it, not just as these external observers, but because we are fundamentally a part of it. And a problem arises when this field develops awareness. It gets confused and it thinks, how can I be that? But if you think about it, like you're made of atoms, you're made of elements and just like the air around you, you know, it's, this is just the, the the separation between your body and the air around you is just a different composition of atoms. But it's the same thing. It's the same universe. So for me, that is where we can get to the conclusion that we are one. But it's kind of a, a, a spiritual thing, but we get there through science. And I think more and more we're discovering that this spirituality and science are inextricably connected.
1: Yeah, Eric, I think Um, what you're saying, it brings up a lot lot in me because I think that the mind, it's a very, very interesting, it's an interesting thing to think about because, you know, there's this whole thing about mind-body duality. Is the mind the body? Is the mind the brain? Or is the mind something that emerges from the brain? And if you just have a brain, do you have a mind? That's this whole thing that, you know, there's arguments about, there's controversy over it. But I really think that the mind is like the spiritual portal into science, so to speak. There's so many things like a few of the examples that you just brought up. Also, if you think about um, people who walk on coal, like I read this book about um, people who walk on hot coal and their, their feet when they're walking on this hot coal, it doesn't burn. They don't form any scars. They walk on hot coal and somehow their mind triggers this reaction in their body that prevents their feet from burning. And that's so powerful. That's so powerful. And that shows this clear connection between spirituality and what you feel inside and what your body reacts to and how your physical body and the physical realm connects to the spiritual realm. I think it's very interrelated, just as you were touching on.
0: Fascinating. Yes. Okay. So in LS7C, which is a course that we've both taken as life scientists, we learned about hormones, of course, and on the membranes of our cells, there are these protein channels to which signals, e.g. hormones, bind and cause some sort of reaction, right? We've discovered that there are more of these protein channels on these cells than there are hormones that we know of. That is to say that there are so many hormones that we have, dis- that we have not discovered. And there is so much going on in the body that we don't know of. So when we talk about these, these Japanese students who got a reaction uh, with a poison ivy leaf or those cancer patients who cured their cancer with their minds. I think there is something to this. That there is science here that we will, we are on the path to discovering to really getting it clear that this is the mind can create physiological response and it has power in this world. I want to go back to something you said earlier about light and how there's light within us and within all of us. For me that made me think of this interesting visualization that I would like to share with you. So let's think of let's think of consciousness of this light, let's say consciousness awareness as this sphere of white light like a ball and we cover this sphere with a black curtain, such that no light can come out. This represents the universe when there are no observers. There's no life, no robots, no superintelligent AI, etc. The universe is dead, like a rock. Okay, but as the universe gets more and more complex, as stars die and... Beautiful supernovae, and on the surface of Earth and planets throughout the cosmos, elements mingle in the depths of oceans to make life, which then evolves to have mind like us humans. Then it's as if we're poking holes in this curtain and letting the light out. We, conscious beings in this universe, are peepholes through which. This light pours, peepholes through which the universe observes itself. That light that you're talking about, it's consciousness. Wow.
1: That was a very interesting visualization. You know, it it made me think when you said if you cover this light with a black curtain, and then the universe is just, there's no consciousness, you don't experience anything, there's just nothing. I have these crazy visualizations sometimes when I'm asleep, and I just close my eyes, and all you see is darkness, right? You see darkness, but you're still experiencing thought, you're still experiencing, um, you still know what's going on, you feel things around you. And then I think, say there were no people left, no people. There's still everything else this universe is part of, and the universe is still existing. But what if there was no, there was no universe, there was no nothing, like, not even black, because the color black doesn't exist, there's just nothing. And trying to, figure out what that nothingness is to me is one of the most perplexing thoughts ever because figuring out nothingness takes consciousness and there wouldn't even be consciousness about nothingness and I don't know your visualization that it just made me go back to those thoughts when I have this strange feeling of, of nothingness and what would that be and no one would even experience that so how would you figure out what that is and yeah <laughs>
0: I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how mind relates to matter. It can be one of two possibilities. At, at least this is this is what I've concluded. It can be one of two possibilities. Either mind is separate from matter and it was there at the beginning of the physical universe and somehow now they're interlinked, right? Because we are physical beings who have mind. Or mind arises from matter as an emergent property. Is that possible? Is it possible for mind to emerge from the physical universe or must mind have existed at the start?
1: You know, that's an interesting way of putting it because if you just look at like where mind arises, you you usually have a physical being to have a mind, right? But spirituality is very, um, like everyone has a different version of spirituality and everybody has their own, way of perceiving the world. And some people who believe in in soul can say, soul exists without a body. Even when you die and you have no body left and your body withers or whatever, you still have a soul and you still have a mind. Does that mind have consciousness? Maybe that's up for debate in, in your own spiritual beliefs. But I think that mind is more of an emergent property. I think that, um, I don't think that your brain in itself is your mind. I don't think that your mind is some neurons firing because i think it's much more there's much more to it than that and i think if you trace it back to just a single neuron firing you're not going to get the intricacies and the complexities of the mind but i do think that the brain in relation with all the other parts of the body from that emerges the mind however and you know now that you bring this up i'm having kind of a conflict in myself too because I also believe that, I also believe that you can have mind and you can have out of body experiences that kind of, you know, like go out of your body that your mind doesn't have to always be connected to body. I think it comes down to, do you believe in, okay, say, say, say you die, your, your body is dead and you just have mind left do you have mind left do you still have this is your consciousness and it exists without your body and it goes i don't know to some universal light wherever it goes do you still have that consciousness or does that entirely leave as well because your body is gone can i answer that yeah
0: okay really good question my my frontal cortex is on fire a lot of thinking here so i'm going to bring it back to the physical universe i think that mind is an emergent property of this physical universe. And I think that because it requires no logical leap, we do live in a physical universe and we know that complexity can emerge from purely the laws of physics. Okay, so we can go from the Big Bang and a purely physical universe to a universe that has mind in it. And if we take this line of thinking that mind, is an emergent property of the physical universe, then it follows that this energy of mind, all of the energy that makes up mind is of the physical universe. It is of this universe. It's not other than, right? And second law of thermodynamics, first law of thermodynamics, let me correct myself, matter can neither be created nor destroyed, right? So, this mind energy, whatever it is, maybe it's just like normal energy, it has to go back into the systems. And so when you die, your body dies, the carbon making up your body will go back into the energy systems, as well as whatever was making up your mind will go back into the energy systems. Now, I don't think that you would be conscious after death, because I feel that in order to be aware, there needs to be an observer. When someone dies and the the mind energy goes back into the energy systems, it goes back into the potential for mind, but being just pure potential for mind, there is no observer to observe that mind. Let me give you the example of Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy thinks that there is one mind and there's like this, this, this unity, this oneness and... This unity had a thought, I am, in order to experience itself. The moment it said, I am, and it thought that, it came into existence. Before then, it just existed as potential. There was nothing to experience. But as soon as that, that first thought com- th- comes in, you have awareness. You have an observer feeling this energy of mind. So for me, when the body dies, consciousness dies with it. The mind energy goes back into the potential for mind. That is, you have a physical universe with everything you need for more beings with mind to arise in the future, but you're no longer aware of anything after death.
1: Yeah, so I have for you, I have some questions to kind of touch on that because you bring up a lot of interesting points. First, do you think there is any way to bring about awareness other than attaching a physical body? that becomes this observer.
0: Does a physical body include being software or like some computer program, AI, a robot? Is that a physical body or or is a physical body like flesh?
1: I was thinking more of flesh. Do you want to expand on your AI track?
0: Yes. If we are observers of the universe, we are peoples through which the universe observes itself, then a robot that is self-aware is that observer of itself just, a, just the same. It's the universe just the same as we are. We're not, there's nothing really special about humans. We're just an animal that can, that is conscious. Artificial intelligence could be just as conscious and they don't need a body, right? They would still being these physical beings, they would still be the universe experiencing itself. So for me, no, consciousness does not require a flesh human body. To be self-aware.
1: So do you believe that artificial intelligence has a mind?
0: At the moment, I do not. And I don't think, I think everyone would agree that it doesn't. Because it's just very narrow intelligence. But in the fu- I think it is possible. I think in the future it is possible for there to be other, let's say, observers than, than us.
1: Yeah, that is an interesting thought. Science is so, something about science is so expansive and where we are right now and what we know right now is not even a fraction of what exists in the world and what we're going to know in the future. And that's such a cool thing to think. Like, I wish we can take future goggles and look into the future and see everything that's going to be because there's so much that we still haven't even learned despite how much we already know. And it's really interesting to think of AI having a mind because... Like right now, the mind of AI, so to speak, is just a human mind, just programmer telling it what to do. So it's more of like training it to do something that the human is thinking of on its own and then it's just doing it really, really well. But to think of forming this mind is getting into this, this spirituality, this consciousness. So like, can you program something to, to develop a consciousness, to develop spirituality? That's a really interesting topic. Definitely something worth exploring. Um, I don't know if we can with like, what we know now, but definitely in the future, that's going to turn into a big thing as AI becomes more prevalent in the world. You know, another thing, what you said about the first law of thermodynamics with this um, conservation of energy. I think that was also interesting, because you say that this mind energy goes back into the energy of the universe. And then the energy of the universe, it can be used as kinetic energy, potential energy, you know, all those different forms of energy. And that's like, that's an interesting thought because the mind energy is so, you know, it's so distinct. It's 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 really powerful. It has this consciousness behind it. So to think of that being turned into kinetic energy or something like that—that's much more nitty gritty—is weird for me to picture it that way. So I think it's it's a unique perspective that you brought up. It definitely makes me think of things a little differently.
0: I see what you mean, and I, I see see what you mean because mind seems like such an expansive thing, and to reduce it to Jules, it's just weird, but at the same time, the alternative would require us saying that mind is other than the physical universe, and I think that requires a logical leap. Saying that mind is the result of energy, of physical parts of the universe, then when we die, that mind energy will just go back into the energy systems. I don't think it's other than. Simply because it doesn't require a logical leap. And I try to stay grounded in, in uh, science. Okay, so there's, there's one thing I do want to explore. In terms of mind, now that we're here. This is in... Okay, I'm going to give you first the introduction into my thought. Something I've been really thinking about the past few months. Okay, let's go the, to the observable universe. Zoom out. You're at the largest scale in this physical universe. You can see everything, okay? Now we zoom in. Zoom into the Milky Way, to the Virgo Supercluster local group, the solar system. Okay, now you're Earth. Go to North America, California, to us, and you get to this head. Okay? Beyond this head, or this body, there is mind. And it's not like it's in any direction like behind my head there's obviously these panels but in some some di- in some direction like within me there is a whole universe of mind and i can i can explore this universe i can explore many different mental states i can read a book and explore the mental states this author wants me to explore i can go snowboarding i can walk i can explore this whole universe of mind Think of a, an hourglass, like that shape, right? It's like you have a point and it expands infinitely outward in one direction and, that, and infinitely outward in the other direction from that same point. We are that point. We are the connection between this physical universe and the mind universe. So this is the question that I am pondering and that I do not yet have an answer for. Is it the case that each of us is exploring their own universe of mind? Or are we all exploring the nooks and crannies of this unified mind space?
1: Personally, I'll just talk about what I believe. Okay. So everyone has very different experiences and everybody has very different mental experiences and mental journeys. Um, But I think the mind is more of a collective. Not so much as if we are all taking, fr- not as if we have, let's say we have a paper and we have everything written down of the mind and everyone is just experiencing, like reading bits of this paper and not so much like that, the more that the mind all came from the same universal source. And because of that, we are very much connected. Um, we are very much connected by this consciousness that we experience. And I think if you really dig deep into the mind, you can have conversations with other people just through the mind. I know this is like um, kind of a stretch right now, but things like mind reading or things like um, telepathy, I think those are very powerful things that can exist just because of how connected the mind is at this fundamental level of coming from the same source, the same universal source. And I don't think that we're all isolated living our own mind because if that was the case, we would all be experiencing completely different realities. You would be, that's almost as if everybody is experiencing their own world and they're their own person, this own world, and everything else around them is like a simulation of this world. But that's not the case. Well, I mean, unless everything's simulated. I don't know if it's the case, but I don't think that's the case. I think everybody is experiencing this world unified and our mind is unified in a way. We just all have slightly different experiences with it. But, because of this connection, it all comes from the same source. Like we can definitely communicate through our mind um, rather than being isolated in our own little cells with our with our experiences
0: I see so based on what I said earlier of my example with the ball of light covered by a curtain with holes on it, I would agree with you. However, to me, it seems that we are exploring the same physical universe, but We're each confined to our own minds. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I actually, I I think that that is actually already happening and I've never personally experienced it, but I have read books about people who have experienced it with out-of-body experiences, things like that. When you go to sleep and you have an experience where your mind leaves your body and you trek into somebody else's mind, and then you both wake up. Not, no, none of this was planned, and you both are like, wait, you were there, I was there, and the same thing happened to us both. I've read stories of that, and I think that you know that there's a lot of speculation around that, but I think that could be very telling of this possibility to um, go beyond the limits of your own mind and enter other people's minds and have those similar experiences because you're all essentially sharing this, like, as you said, this curtain of life light, it's like the same for everybody. So, I don't know. I don't think it's so much that that hasn't already happened. I think that some people have had those experiences already.
0: So, this is where I do agree with you. The sense of identity, the sense of being a self, is entirely an illusion. You can get the insight that you are pure awareness, that you are just pure beingness, the universe just being, and that you are not nira and i'm not eric we're not these egos right so i think that the ego that sense of separateness is the result of consciousness being manifested into a physical being in order to for mind to come into this physical universe and observe it has to go through some medium in our case that medium is the human brain the human nervous system the human body when consciousness goes through us we get an ego we get a sense of being and i think this sense of 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 i am of i am an individual is necessary in order for this body to continue living because think about it evolutionarily speaking if you had a human being who thought i am one with the universe i am everything then they would just sit on a rock and get eaten you need the sense of individuality in order to want to fight for food to want to go out and mate do do all these things without the ego there is no evolutionary progress and thus mind cannot exist through this physical body okay so our zoom crashed but i was saying that the ego the sense of separateness is a purely human thing and that we given that we all pull from the same physical resources we all pull from the same elements the same energy it follows that we also pull from the same mind energy. So I think that is where being able to travel each other's minds, it's plausible. But from my perspective, I can't for me, it's like I can't travel to you, you know, in my mind.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, you can have like everyone has their own experiences, physical experiences that really, really shape your mental experiences as well. Um. So I think even if you pull from the same source, it doesn't mean that you don't have individuality or that you don't have um, you know, your own human experiences. It's kind of like you have two babies that are born like identical twins. They're born from the same genes, but they don't turn out to have the exact same experiences or the same mental states. You can even have one that ends up being depressed and one that ends up being very happy, even if they come from the exact same source, the exact same genetic code. Your experiences really, really shape everything about you. So even pulling from the same mind energy source, you can have that individuality um, that we all feel and experience. And, you know, like right now, um, telepathy, things like that, it's not really big. But we also don't know everything and we haven't experienced everything. And maybe there is some sort of scientific explanation for it. Teleportation, for example, this sounds crazy. This sounds beyond. It doesn't sound like it's real. But Recently, or um, I forgot when, I think like a year back, there was an experiment where teleportation happened for a little small particle in physics and there was starting to be a physics explanation for it. And it's not just so much this crazy spiritual thing. So I just think that we are very connected and our minds are very connected and there's a lot of power behind that. And right now maybe science doesn't seem like it goes hand in hand with it, but since science and spirituality are, in my opinion, one and of the same, I think it's more of this learning process and we're going to learn more about how they're interrelated and how these things can happen, not so much that we don't know it now and therefore it doesn't exist.
0: Yes, let us not forget that we are ancients. We will one day be ancients. There is going to be some people in the future, some descendants of humanity hopefully, who look at us as we look upon the Egyptians. So, let's not think us think ourselves too high and mighty. That we know everything and that these weird phenomena cannot exist. They very well might be proven true in the next few millennia. I know you have to get to class. Uh, I think this is a great place to cut it off. I want to thank you for coming on the show. This was awesome. As always, I had a wonderful time talking to you.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure being your friend.
0: See ya.